My name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, just like Brandon said, uh, today we're resuming our study of Matthew as Holy Week begins, which is the last week of, uh, in the earthly life of Jesus. So just to refresh us a little bit, um, Matthew, author of this book, was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. So an eyewitness to his life, uh, his death, his resurrection. Uh, and he is writing this book predominantly, uh, or to a predominantly Jewish audience, um, hoping to communicate the life of Christ, the significance of Christ, in such a way uh, that it will speak to them. They can see Christ for who he really is. Uh, and that goes the same for us this morning. So we're picking back up in the 21st chapter of Matthew. Um, I was thinking this week just the, <laughs> how we all have things, we all have people, uh, we all have responsibilities that, that lay claim to our life. Um, we have jobs that require our time and effort. We have relationships, friendships, marriages, parenthood, family that, that take and need our energy, our care, um, our focus, our time, and our intention. Um, and if we want to engage life, if we want to engage our world, if we want to be good friends, if we want to be good children, parents, spouses, citizens, and workers, then, then we do have to allow others and other things to, to, claim, to claim our lives. I mean, even practically, if we want to keep the lights on, if we want to keep our apartments and our homes, which I'm sure most of us do, um, if we want to have fuels in our, fuel in our cars and we want to pay bills, there are things that we have to buy. We have errands to run. Even the YMCA membership that you recently signed up for is laying claim to your life right now. So, at least for the, you know, the next 12 months. Um, now, we enter most of these, of these relationships by choice. Most of these things by choice. But at the same time, they're, if, we, if we're really honest, and I hope that we can be, um, there is this wrestle there's a wrestle that there's something in us that really refuses to be claimed completely by anything. Call it fierce individualism, call it love of autonomy, call it a fear of, uh, of giving up control. But that's prevalent, prevalent in the West, sure, but prevalent in humanity that we instinctively buck against being ultimately controlled by anyone or anything. And so as we look into Matthew's narrative, we see that the Jewish people weren't different. I mean, they, they had been dealing with Roman occupation for a while, and even though it was a, a political agreement between the Romans and, and the Jews, they were being oppressed, and they did long to be free. They had all, the, the Jewish people had actually grown up being taught that a, that a great king would come. That a great king would come. He talks about him repeatedly in, in the Old Testament, which is the portion of the Bible that comes before Jesus, of where, of where this king will come, and he's, he's actually the one that's gonna break the chariots and the, and the bows and the weapons uh, of their enemies. And so they, they've pictured this king that's gonna come and put all of these enemies underneath his feet and create this, this wonderful existence where all all manner of things are well uh, and will be well again. They had an idea of what their king would be like and how he would conquer. Now, expectation, expectation is everything. Um, it's why you and I get upset, get sad, fearful, disappointed, angry, when what we thought would happen doesn't happen 
Um, your friend says, let's go see a movie. You say, that sounds amazing. I can't wait. It's probably going to be great. And then they come and they're like, I got two tickets to the Power Rangers. And you're like, our friendship is over. Like, that's, that's disappointment. Um, that's just, God, it feels like the apex of disappointment, actually, at this moment. Um, it's depressing. Um, but Matthew is going to show us in this text that Jesus is declaring his kingship really loudly. He just did it in a way that surprised everyone, and that, that includes us. So Matthew writes, Now when they, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So we have... We have Jesus and his disciples headed towards Jerusalem. It's getting close to Passover, which is this feast um, that was celebrated by the Jews that commemorated um, God's rescue of them from Egyptian slavery. And as they draw close to Jerusalem, they come to this little area called Bethpage. Now, something I want to point out, so minor, but just kind of like as a sort of a spatial, if we can get an idea, this visual, that Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, Bethpage and Bethany were, were really all like within a two-mile distance. So if you were walking from Bethany to Jerusalem, you had to go through Bethpage and around the Mount of Olives to get to Jerusalem. So all of that area really is all close together. And, and interestingly enough, these were all places that Jesus was a regular visitor. He came to Bethany uh, a lot and was well known there. But as he's drawing closer and closer to this, essentially this standoff with the Romans, he begins to speak louder and louder about his Messiahship. If you remember, um, I think it was two months ago, Brandon taught on the verses that are just before this particular passage, uh, where there are two blind men outside of the city of Jericho, which is <laughs> about another 13 miles sort of southeast of, uh, of Jerusalem. And there were two blind men there who cried out to Jesus and they were asking, they were asking Jesus for mercy and calling him the son of David. Now, when they called him that, they were essentially saying, have mercy on us, ultimate promised king of the universe. So that title, and this is what's interesting is because when they give him that title, really this is the first time but anyone's given them that title. And the interesting thing is, is that Jesus does not fight them. He doesn't fight them. He, they say, <laughs> they say, have mercy on us, ultimate promised king of the universe. And he says, yeah, that's me. What can I do for you? So he's accepting the title of king of the world from the crowds. And with this public proclamation, he knows, the disciples know, and any hearer of this would know that it's going to force a conflict. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was born as a baby and, he, and it was promised that, he, that there, was, there would be this true king that came? That's why Jerusalem and Herod lit up is because Jesus was said to be the true king and so that led Herod to snuff out all young male children in the area. So when Jesus is labeled as king here, it forces the issue because it creates opposition with every other king that exists. Because there is opposition there. I mean, even as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, as we read, there was a stir 
And it, it, the, the word there is actually this, 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 the word for seismic. Like there was a quake. Like people were saying, what is happening? Something is happening. Who, who is this? They knew who Jesus was. They didn't, it wasn't like, oh, who's here? It was, no, why is everyone kind of in a frenzy? Over whom are they over? Are they getting into a frenzy? And it's Jesus. At this time, Roman, the Roman people, the Roman government had completely occupied Jerusalem and they were, they were in power even amongst the Jewish leaders. I mean, there was bribery and manipula- manipulation, there was murder, there was coercion. So it, it was not a clean government. It was barbarous uh, at best. So with Jesus calling himself Messiah, the true deliverer, the true king, his presence in life is now creating a lot of tension because it's, we're in this do or die situation, this tension. Jesus is now either going to take back Jerusalem, take back his rule, take back his people, or he's going to be crushed and murdered by the establishment, the outcome is going to determine everything. So now, the movies that I've seen depicting this particular scene, and mind you, it's not many, but one or two, um, have Jesus walking into Jerusalem usually by himself. Uh, Not necessarily like overtly, uh, not really even covertly, but he wanders in, uh, people see him and they freak out and they force him on to the donkey. Like, you gotta get up on the donkey, you're the king, you gotta get on this donkey. And they like force him into it and and then break off the the branches and and wave him in. And, And Jesus always has this look of like, like the, the guy who hits the walk-off grand slam and he comes into the dugout and they're like, ah, get out there, you gotta wave your hat, you gotta, you know, the fans want you. And he like comes out and goes, yay, and then he gets back in the dugout. But that's not, that depiction is incorrect, that's not what's happening here. Jesus isn't modest. He's actually directing everything that's happening. So he sends these two disciples to Bethpage to get a donkey that belongs to someone else. And he says, tell them that the Lord needs them. In other words, because he, he's well known in this area, so don't forget that. He, when he says the Lord needs them, they, they would know it's Jesus who needs these animals. Remember Bethpage and Bethany are right by each other. And Bethany is where Jesus has been visiting Martha and Mary, Lazarus. He knows the people and they know him I mean, even if you look at, the, at verse 17, after, after he clean, clears out the temple, it says that he retired to Bethany for the evening. So he went back with his friends. So this isn't Jesus hijacking a car. Um, this is Jesus borrowing a friend's vehicle. Tell them the Lord. Oh, Jesus, sure, yeah, you can take them. So the disciples come back with the donkey and it's cult, which is important, but they also come with a ton of people because these disciples are coming. They know the disciples. Oh, Jesus needs the donkey. Where are you going? Well, we're headed to Jerusalem. Can I come? So now we've got a crowd. We've got these two disciples coming back with two donkeys, and we've got a crowd coming because they want to come with him. Matthew, in all of this, in all of this, is trying to get us to see that Jesus is the true king who's come to extend his rule to all creation. So he says this, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they put on them their cloaks and he sat on them, the cloaks, not both donkeys at the same time. 
Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now here, it's important to remember that in the middle of all this praise that we do remember that amidst all that Jesus has done, his teachings, miracles, He's calmed seas, he's freed, possessed people, he's brought people back to life, but he is regularly just sort of weaving in and kind of dropping in this idea that I'm going to suffer and I'm going to eventually die. Of course, that's not really landing with a lot of people, especially now, because we're, he's, you know, the, the people who are there in the crowd, like they're, they're, they're saying, they're saying, yeah, they're, they're, they're praising him and saying like, this is where we're headed. We're headed to Jerusalem, so if we're headed to Jerusalem, maybe, maybe those things that he was sprinkling in, he, he was talking about something else because maybe, perhaps, say the crowds and say the disciples, that he's finally gonna do what we've always hoped that he would do. He's gonna go into Jerusalem and he's just gonna oust the Romans. He's gonna mop up all of this oppression, all of this occupation. He's gonna give us back our identity and our dignity. We're gonna get back our city. We're gonna get back our home where we've always been meant to live in peace. We're gonna get our place back as God's people. Like we're, we're gonna get it all back. All the things that we lost, all the things that were taken from us. Jesus is gonna get all of them back. Everything we loved and all manner of things will be well. And they have an idea of how that's going to happen. See, the Jews were living a particular gospel story. They had an idea of where they came from. They had an idea of what went wrong. They had an idea of what would fix it, and they had an idea of what kind of future that would create. And that's the same for us. Every one of us is living a gospel story. We have an idea of where it went wrong. For me, it was, uh, where do we come from? We came from, uh, we came from primates, you know, good stock, you know, right? So we, we came from good stock, and then, and then something kind of went wrong, and a bunch of bad apples in the evolutionary process, a bunch of bad apples came into, uh, into play, and it's, and it's essentially ruined it for everyone. So Hitler and Mussolini and Pol Pot and... Uh, you know, people who abuse people in their family. Uh, those, are, those are the bad apples and they're ruining for the rest of us. So the, the way that it's gonna get fixed is if all the bad apples get removed and then we're gonna have that utopian future. But we're all, all of us. That's what I, that's what I thought when growing up. That's the, that's the way I viewed the world. I just knew that I wasn't a bad apple. I just knew that other people were. That's how I saw it. So it just makes me ask all of us, Christian, non-Christian, whoever you are, what, what, what gospel story are you, are you living? What's gone wrong? What will fix it? Okay, let's jump back in. So now that Jesus has accepted this title as ultimate king, he climbs onto his noble steed, a donkey. 
but the colt of a donkey. So small donkey, little donkey. It's true. An unridden offspring, and he heads into Jerusalem with all of these crowds around him, behind him, with him, before him. This is the ticker tape parade. This is, this is the Cubs winning the World Series and then showing up on Main Street on the fire truck, going down the street. And they're cheering and praising Hosanna in the highest, which, interestingly enough, meant, God, save us in the most complete way possible. Save us completely. But his ride into Jerusalem is just incredible because the Messiah of the world chooses a donkey. Let's think about that. You don't win a battle riding on a donkey. Donkeys don't go into battle. Horses go into battle. The main reason horses were used in battle was because they were tall, they were fast, they were intimidating. Even the sound of the animals, the difference between a horse and a donkey, your mind is already filling with those, those sounds. We, we see a horse as something that's intimidating and strong and a donkey as something that's unintelligent. But they gave... Horses gave their riders strategic and practical advantage. A king on a stallion prepares to take down an enemy, but a king on a donkey prepares to be taken down himself. On a donkey, a rider is vulnerable and weak and defenseless. And notice that Jesus doesn't have a sword in his hand. Donkeys are bred to plow. They're bred to carry weight. They're, they're beasts of burden, and they work in thorns and thistles. Kings ride stallions. Servants ride donkeys. See, this is really important for us to catch. Jesus is doing this for a very specific reason. He wants us to see that he is not afraid of who he is. He's, he didn't get on the donkey and hang his head low and say, gosh, I hope Kevin doesn't see me. Like, the, he's not afraid of people seeing him for who he is. Riding on this little, this, this, this baby donkey. He's happy and content to be who he is. And this is what Matthew says. The reason that he did this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. A conquering king, a conquering hero is up high. He is inaccessible. Did, did anybody get close to the cubs on, on, on their fire truck? No. No, there's distance there's distance in those, in those instances, but in this one, Jesus is low and he's accessible. He's personal. Behold, your king is coming to you. What? He's humble. He, he, this is the king. I, I don't know any king that does this. This is the king that comes to people. If you're a prominent king, king of the universe, 
People come to you. But this is the king that is lowly and humble, and he goes to people. He is kind and meek and gentle and humble. He comes close. He's the king with humility. Humility asks questions. Pride talks over people. Humility says, comes, comes close and asks questions and listens. Pride doesn't listen. But he's telling us something specific here that the ultimate king is coming to Jerusalem, but he's also coming to each one of us. He's coming to you and to you and to you. To each one of us he is coming, to each one of our hearts, to each one of our minds. Jesus is not an inspirer. He's not a coach. He's not a life manager. He's not a consultant. He's not a cabinet. He, none of that would be enough for our souls. None of that would be enough for our souls. None of that. And it's not even the correct view of him. You can fire a coach. You can fire a consultant. You cannot fire a king. A king, when he comes, he rules you. He rules you. He lays claim to all of you, to every bit of you. There is no in-between. See, Jesus isn't coming just to be admired. He's coming for total surrender or nothing. Total surrender or nothing. If you're a Christian, let me ask you this. Are you enjoying Jesus as king? Are you obeying Jesus as king? Could it be that if he is more coach than king, if he's more consultant or advisor than king, that it might actually be difficult to really enjoy him or obey him because he's not enough to you yet. I can ignore consultants, I have better ideas. I can ignore coaches, I see another way. A king, we bow a knee. He claims all of us. Why is it so hard to see him as a king? Why do we have that wrestle? Why do we have that tension and difficulty? What's, what's going on? What's wrong with, with us? If this is the king, the lowly king that comes and says, hey, I get close. I get near. You can touch me. I'm not gonna ride far away. I'm not gonna ride up high where you can't see me. I'm gonna ride so low that you look down on me. Louis C.K., who's a, a stand-up comedian, recently said this, he said, it would be an amazing gift to know what is wrong with us. For myself, I don't have any ideas, but I would give a million dollars to wake up one day and know what's wrong with me. What's wrong with us? And we talked a little bit about this last year when we were in the book of Colossians. We said that The problem with us is sin. 
but that the core of sin is us putting ourselves where only God belongs. It's us putting ourselves where only the king belongs. See, the reason that we can't see king, Jesus as king, the reason we have broken families, the reason there's genocide, the reason there's Syria, the reason there's Egypt this morning is because instead of being servants, we try to be kings. And we put ourselves in the place where only God belongs. In my, I've been a, a pastor now for five years, and I think one thing I've learned about us, and this is me included, I'm the chief of this, we, we worry so much. We worry a lot. And while that worry manifests in a number of ways for all of us, I mean, some of us, you're worriers, and it gets you working, you know? Like, you're like, we're gonna hammer this out. I'm gonna fight this worry with activity. And there are others of us who are like, I'm so worried that I'm just gonna slip out this back door and not worry about what's going on. Some of us just freeze. When that really gets cooking, when that worry really gets cooking in us and our need begins to redline, like, like 9,000 9, RPMs, we are really trying to offset worry by putting ourselves in the place of the king. We worry because deep down, we have got to make sure that our lives go a certain way. They've got to go a certain way. The Bible says that this is what starts every fight, every division, every quarrel. We want something and we don't get it. And so we employ anger and manipulation and deceit to get what we love most. Now, in that problem, in that problem of what's broken in us where we can't see the king as the king and we try to make ourselves the king in all of these areas, our only human response and supposed cure is essentially to build one another up with so much self-esteem that we don't worry anymore. Or we say, I don't think that fighting fixes anything. I don't think that anger really has any use at all. You shouldn't be so angry. Do you, I know that you struggle with jealousy, but my goodness, look at what you have. Other people would be jealous of you. You need to be grateful for what you have. And every single one of those encouragements is like firing a BB gun at a freight train. Now, if the core of sin is putting ourselves where only the king belongs, then the cure for that Salvation, the core of salvation is the king putting himself where only we belong. There has to be something that reverses, that undoes the sin that we have committed. In the gospel book of Luke, it's the same, it's the same scene but from Luke's perspective. He records Jesus on that same donkey, but we see in Matthew that Matthew doesn't record what's actually going on with Jesus on that donkey. But I love that Luke has this, he has this inside track. And he writes this. He sees Jesus, records Jesus this way. 
And when he drew near, he being Jesus, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Here is Jesus riding on his donkey. Here are the crowds shouting, their cloaks out in front of him, the palm branches waving, the palm branches on the ground. They're saying, Hosanna in the highest, save us, bring peace, bring back all that we've lost. We're trusting you to go in there and take the Romans down. We're trusting you to go in there and give us everything back that we loved so dearly. And Jesus sees the city and he cries. And he says, giving that back to you will not make for peace. You think it will. That's not what you need. It's not what you need. We have our own ideas of what would make for peace in our world. I, there was this image that burned into my mind. It was right after, I mean, it was really, I think it was a couple of hours after the election. And there was this, just this fixed camera shot of two people standing about, I don't know, 10 feet apart. One had you know, all these Hillary buttons and, and stickers and one had all these Trump buttons and stickers and they were both bawling. But for different reasons. This guy with the Trump stickers was saying, finally, I get my America back. I get everything I've lost. Get my job back. Get my family back. I don't know. Just, just so elated that finally he was going to get what he loved most and Trump was going to get it for him. And this woman crying because she thought all hope is lost. It'll never be the same. I'll never get my America back. I really thought Hillary could get it for me. And Jesus says to those Jews, he says to those two, he says to us, that thing that you're standing on is not what is gonna make for peace. It's not what's gonna make for peace. The Jews were praising Jesus to save them completely. And there is Jesus riding up through Jerusalem. Just imagine, maybe the disciples were looking at Jesus, watching him enter there's a huge stir. People are running. What's, what's going on? What's all the commotion? And they run over and they see Jesus walking through. And maybe the Jews who hadn't come out yet were thinking, oh man, yes, it's gonna happen. He's gonna come in here and maybe he'll just like set all the Romans on fire. It'll be awesome. But Jesus rides past the Romans and he doesn't do anything. Days later, he's actually not going to arrest anyone. He's going to be arrested. He's not going to put on anyone. He's not going to put anyone on trial. He's going to let himself be put on trial. And in the end, he's he is the one who will be ousted. He's the king, the lowly, humble king that no one expects. What, what, can you, what can you tell in your heart, in your mind, 
what would give you what could he what would he have to give you to make you call him king what would he have to give you to make him call to make you call him king does he does he need to take away the the depression that you're just this just owning you maybe maybe you think like i i've i've lost my i've i've lost tons of things i'm hoping that jesus will kind of bring them back Maybe you've gone through a terrible tragedy and you're sitting there thinking like, I just want to be me again. I miss how it used to be. I miss how I used to be. Maybe the marriage you think you deserve, just give me that. I'll call you king. Maybe a house or the career or the 401k. What it, let me just say that if that's what you're after, that's not what will bring peace. It's not what's gonna bring peace. If that's what you're after, you don't want a king, you want an advisor, you want a consultant. You want someone working for you. And that makes you king. That makes me a king. So what does this gentle king, the servant king Jesus do? The king who reigns on high, he comes low. He comes to take back what was really lost, to ride past the Romans on his way to Calvary, on his way to the cross. This was God on a donkey, but there was no pomp and circumstance. This was the God that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that by his poverty we would become rich. How, how incredible that he rode the beast of burden, the donkey, into the city so that he could become the ultimate beast of burden, taking all of our burden upon himself. He's the king who traded places with us, who put himself where only we belonged, on a cross and in a tomb. Sojourn, if this loving, humble, powerful king gets a hold of our lives, gets a hold of your life, your mind, your heart, you will be transformed into a humble, lowly servant king as well, able to stand securely in what he has done while, being, while serving in complete lowliness, glad to do it because you have your king. The Jews and the disciples wanted liberation and salvation through strength. And Jesus said, no, it's actually only through weakness that it's found. I think this is terribly interesting. Matthew cites Zechariah 9.9, but he leaves one part of the verse out, and I think he leaves it out so that we will read it and that the Jews would notice that it wasn't there. And if you see it, behold, your king is coming to you. He has righteousness and salvation. That's who he is. That is what you need. That is the king that you need. Jesus comes to die 
so that we can see a king save us, not with his strength, but by his grace through his own weakness. That's how he proclaims his kingship, through weakness. That's how he breaks the chariots and the bows of the enemy. Salvation and righteousness only found in him. Let's end here. Where are you trying to be king? Where, where are you worrying enough to try and control life, other people, your family, your spouse? Maybe you're trying to rule through anger. Nobody's gonna mess with you because they know what happens when you get really angry. Where are you trying to be the king? Can I tell you that if your king is you, you are not the humble king. I think if we, if we take this, just this part, just a little bit, aren't you so much better at giving other people grace? When it comes to you, there, there isn't very much. Maybe that's you. If you're that king, who doesn't give grace, you're not the king you need either. He's the king that you need. Sojourn, guest, non, if you're non-Christian, Christian, whomever you are, if you really think that you're saved by strength, if you really think that strength and might is how you're saved, pay attention to how you respond and how you act when someone really, really hurts you. Perhaps you may find that you're either too angry or too proud to forgive. I was thinking through that the other day. Um, I had a very, very rough relationship with my dad. And when I was 13, I made arrangements to legally change my name because I didn't want his name to be my name. And at 13, I know I didn't, I, 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 I will never know what that did to him. I'll never know. But I can tell you that when I was 25, I got to go to lunch with him. And, and I got to sit across from him and ask for his forgiveness. Because I know that I'd hurt him so, so much. And I was able to say, because I have been named by Christ, I am glad to have your name. It makes me wonder, Sojourn, are there any current family, friends, people in your work, people in your life, people in your past, people in your present, that, that you need to forgive and that you need to seek forgiveness from? Is there anybody? If you can see that this king, this king came and laid himself low to make you rich, perhaps we could be that kind of community that's happy to lay themselves low to make other people rich. Could you see him as king?
this lowly God-man from Nazareth. Your heart, your heart and your soul don't need, a, don't need a prophet. They don't need a teacher or a consultant. Your, heart, your hearts and your lives need a king. And Matthew just said, and he has come to you. He's come to you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Our Father, we thank you. For being the God, as Psalm 2 says, that has set his king in Zion. That you have placed Jesus Lord, as your king, as our king. And I pray that we would be a people who are glad to be ruled in totality. I think maybe sometimes, Father, we think that real freedom is not having a ruler, but honestly, not having a ruler is not knowing who we are. Who, how can I know who I am if I don't know the one who has claimed my whole life? God, I pray that for all of us in here that, that in a way that you would set us free by, by showing us how deeply you've claimed us and, and really in a real way yoked us as your own. How beautiful is it that you have claimed us and you own us and that our obedience and enjoyment of you can actually lead us, Lord, to, to further being convinced that you are a king, that you are a good king. Lord, mark this family, this sojourn family, that we might be a people that can lay themselves low to make other people rich. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.